I want to ask a question this morning. Who is the church? Um, thinking, uh, continuing on this trajectory we've been on for a few weeks now. Starting with um, looking at our foundation, that being the gospel. And really trying to push in on the reality that if we miss the gospel, we miss everything. So we can organize a church, we can facilitate church gatherings, we can go globally, we can do all these things. But if we miss the gospel, it's all for nothing. Uh, then transitioning over into what is our primary strategy, and that being discipleship. Our, our strategy, our calling is to make disciples who make disciples. And that is discipleship, a, a lifelong process of uh, intimacy with God, relationship with others, and a collective relationship with the body. Uh, and then going into the sermon before we left to go overseas, uh, looking at our directive, what we've been uh, commanded to do, and that is mission, to make disciples of all nations. Um, and so now we're going to begin to transition into some of the more practical elements that will have bearing for us as a church going forward. And so I encourage you to, to listen over these next few weeks, to study the scriptures for yourself. Um, as these teachings are online, go back and listen to them again. And uh, trust by God's grace, by the Spirit's presence and the power of the Word, that we are pursuing a right and proper direction as a church. <clears throat> so we're asking the question, who is the church? Next week we'll look at uh, church membership. The next week um, we'll look at church leadership. Just to be clear, this is kind of, a, kind of an understood reality, but just to be clear, Redeemer is a church. Redeemer is a church. Redeemer is not a group. Redeemer is not a club. Redeemer is not a gathering. Redeemer is not an event. Redeemer is not a location. Redeemer is a church. And the church is a people. And so we are a church. And so the question concerning church in our culture most often goes something like, hey, where do you go to church? Right? That's just kind of, that's how we ask that question in, in our culture. And we understand that, but the more appropriate question uh, if you want to kind of engage in some interesting conversation, like frame the question a little differently next time maybe, um, and say something like, with whom do you go to church with? Or, where do you do church? Because church is not just something we attend or something we uh, show up for, engage in for a specific moment, but the question has to be wider, not, and, and that's why we're asking the question not, what is the church, but who is the church? What is the church? The question is off base. It's, the church isn't a, isn't a what. The church is a who. And so who is the church? If, if, if we're only asking the what question, we, here's what we're doing. We're leaning toward considering the church as a, maybe a building or an organization or some type of entity, a thing. But the church, according to the scriptures, is a people. A people called by God. A collective community joined together to do the work of Christ for the glory of Christ. And so we're going to ask, who is the church? Uh, a sampling of New Testament passages. Rather than uh, diving into one text and, and walking systematically through one text this morning, the, the sermon's going to be a little different. Uh, you'll need to keep your Bibles handy in whatever form because we're, we're going to be looking at different pictures of the, the church in the New Testament. But the New Testament word that's, that's translated for us, church, is ecclesia. And Ecclesia in the culture of the New Testament, the day of the New Testament, was not a particularly religious word. The word was simply used for a group of persons called together for a particular purpose. And so if a town had a meeting, that gathering was called an ecclesia. However, when the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself, three times in Matthew 16 and 18, uses the word church, that's the word that we have in the original language. 
And so what happens in the New Testament, it's interesting if you think about it. If you, if you read the Gospels, you only see the word church itself mentioned three times. Three times. One in Matthew 16, where Peter's, uh, when, when Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, I will build my church. And then two chapters later in Matthew 18, we have the word church used twice when Jesus is giving us uh, kind of a blueprint with how to deal with a brother who's, who's entrapped by sin. And he says to tell it to the church, tell it to the church. And so only three times in the Gospels do we see the word church. Transition to the next kind of era in the New Testament, the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit comes on the church, and we see this word church gaining prominence. And then when you get especially to Paul's writings, you see the word church all over the place. Because he, he, he actually starts his writings with, to the church at Corinth, to the churches at Galatia, to the church at Ephesus to the brothers and sisters of the church at Rome. And so the picture of the church becomes clearer and clearer as, as the church actually begins to happen in the New Testament. In the New Testament also, the word church is used both in a local sense, but also in a universal sense. So in a local sense, we see things like Paul writing to the church at Corinth, a very specific, a very specific group of people, 1 Corinthians 1-2, or he's writing to the churches of Galatia in Galatians 1, uh, 1 and 2. There are several different churches in that region that he's writing to. He's referring to these local churches. But then also there's this universal picture of church where, uh, where Jesus is the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Ephesians 1.22, he is the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18. So big picture church. Why, why, why bring up both of these realities? Well, we are so inclined to think of church as just us, right? And, and we, be, we develop this isolationist mentality of church. And it's important for us to realize that we are one local expression of what's going on globally. Right? We, we, have, we have brothers and sisters who are in other parts of the world, and some parts where it's a thousand times more difficult to meet like this that are part of this thing we call church. We had the privilege just last week to spend some time with some brothers and sisters who are living in some hard parts of the world, who are learning discipleship uh, tools and ways to engage in local church ministry in their context. And we, Redeemer, we are part of that church as well. So, Two questions to begin, and then we'll look at what I want to see, what I want to point out. Four New Testament pictures of the church. As we ask the question, who is the church? Uh, first question, primary question, because if you don't get this one right, the church doesn't matter. Do you belong to Christ? Do you know Jesus? Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ? If not, church doesn't mean a lick of difference for you. So of primary importance is, do you belong to Christ? And then the second question is, will you belong to his church? And as we continue even these conversations with Redeemer of what church belonging and membership actually looks like, will you belong to his church either here or somewhere else? If it's not the Lord's desire for you to be here, well, that's fine. You need to be somewhere connected to the local church. So four New Testament pictures of the local church, and so this is where we're going to enter into somewhat kind of Bible drill uh, mode for uh, those of you who have a background there. Um, but it's all going to be in the New Testament, mostly in the epistles, so you're good there. Uh, the first picture of the local church that we want to look at in the New Testament is the body of Christ. So number one, the church is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. The New Testament picture of the church as the body of Christ speaks of our function, and so we'll look at each of these pictures, and we'll, we'll, speak to, we'll look at the picture as the body, but we'll also look at why this matters. 
All right, so the, the New Testament picture of the church as the body of Christ speaks to our function. And so we work together in Christ and for Christ. So keep, stay there in 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 1, Paul writes, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head, Jesus as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So 1 Corinthians 12, uh, starting in verse 12. Keep in mind here, Paul is writing to a local church. He's writing to the church at Corinth. And this church was in some bad shape in a lot of ways. And so he's writing, giving directives for them to get back on track as a church. So first, uh, first Corinthians twelve twelve. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Though I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again can, can, the hand, can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, is, which, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one, members, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. The church as the body of Christ. So to bring out a few things here from Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, we see that there's one body and many members. Verse 12, there's, there's one body. There's, the body is one and has many members. And then going on to, to follow Paul's line of logic here, picking it up in verse, verses 14 through 20, every member of the body has a function. Every member of the body has a function. So he, he brings in the foot, the hand, the ear, the head, the eye, all these different body parts. And like you see what he's doing. He's drawing, he's drawing a picture like for, for Corinth especially and for us now to be able to say, oh yeah, I get what you're talking about. I mean, you chop my right arm off, well, my body's incomplete. It's not going to function as it is designed to function. You take out my eyes, my body's not going to function the way that it is designed to function. Each member of the body has a function. And then verse 19, there's no unimportant part of the body. If all were a single member, where would the body be? If, if every part was, a, was an eye, like, how would you get anything done? How could anything happen? And so there's no unimportant part of the body. So just, just thinking... Like even with, with our with our physical makeup, like with this picture, just when 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 you get sick, when you have eye trouble, or when you when you have hearing problems, when you blow out a knee, like it affects the whole body in some way. And it's because those elements are essential to you as a body. And it's the same for the church. Like every member of the church, every part of the church has a function. Like there is no appendix in the church. Right? Like, you may be like me and not have one of those anymore, right? When I was a child, my appendix, like, did whatever they do, and they went in and they cut it out, and 
as best I know, it's had no effect on my body. Like, that's not a part of the local church. Like, there is no, uh, nobody's in appendix here. Somebody might be a big toe, right? But how vital is the big toe? I mean, you cut off your big toe, let's see how you walk around. And that's, that's the picture. The picture is the church is the body of Christ, and therefore the church has proper, good, and profitable function. And then there's this other reality that God establishes the body as he sees fit. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So your part is God's design for you. My part is God's design for me. And my part and your part are on the same playing field. Right? It's not like just because I get to preach primarily that I get this, I'm like the better body part. No, we're all equal body parts in this. But then there's this other part of the function with, with, the, bodies, with the body coming together that he goes to in verse 25. He says there's to be no division in the body, but the members may have same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one's honored, all rejoice together. You're the body of Christ and individually members, members of it together with one another so members god joins members of his church together to do what to care for one another to care for one another and as a body we function most effectively when we are doing one another really really well when we are loving one another when we are we looked at it a couple weeks ago when we are encouraging one another when we are exhorting one another when we are pushing one another on and so as the body, the church functions together in a way that glorifies Christ. And so what I, what I want us to think as we go through these four pictures, thinking about the body, how, how, does, how does my part function in the body of Christ? Like The way that God has equipped me, gifted me, uh, allowed me to serve, planted desires in my heart, like how does that function as a healthy member of the body? The church is only as healthy as, it member, as its members. All right? We need to land on that principle. The church is only as healthy as its members. And the church is the body of Christ, speaking to function. So, number one, church is the body of Christ. Number two, the church is the family of Christ. Flip over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The church is the family of Christ. And as a family, this speaks to our relationship with one another. As a family, the church is in relationship with Christ, primarily, and with one another, primarily. We're in, we're in relationship with Christ and with one another, which we keep beating this drum and we're just going to keep beating it. There's no isolation in the body of Christ. We are a family of one another's. There is no isolation. And as a family, we pursue biblical community with one another. And so as a family, we cultivate relationship with one another. And so just as, by way of challenge, just think okay over, let's just say over the next two weeks who will you take an initiative to invite into your home to have a meal with to have lunch with to meet for coffee just to and it's awkward if you've not done it before but let me just give you just ask a couple questions hey tell me about your family tell me about what kind of work you do tell me your story and your story is not like well i was born and no your story is like i was dead in sin and this is how i realized that and god saved me like that's your story push back against this isolation because we're a family it's not like we all the goal here is not for us just to be chummy with one another right the goal for us is to be in community with one another jesus affirmed the importance of being part of the family of god whenever the the the, the guy came to him 
and, uh, and, and said, hey, your mother and your brothers are wanting to speak to you. Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother. Here's my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my mother and sister and brother. He isn't saying here biological families aren't important. He's saying that following him is of greater importance. And those who follow after Christ are his family. Romans chapter 8 and verse uh, 14 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. Paul's teaching here that those who follow Christ are family with Christ, we're heirs with Christ, but we're also family with one another. And see, this is why the whole, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church, doesn't work. Like it just, it just I, regardless of whether you've been burned by church or just those kinds of things, like God, God is not going to leave someone in that situation, right? God will make that person utterly miserable because they're missing, on, missing out on the family of Christ in the church. And so those who follow Christ are in family with Christ, but also in family with one another. And we come into this family by one means, and that means is adoption, right? No one is born into this family. We are only born again into this family. Just because your mom and daddy are part of the church doesn't make you part of the church. You have to be born again into this family. And adoption is this highest expression of God's love for his children. And he, he chose us. For adoption, Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his will. And so this reminds us that as adopted sons and daughters, like, there's no accident. Like, God, God doesn't adopt you into his family and then later say, mm, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Can we negate this adoption? Can we annul this thing? Like, there are no accidents in this adoption. When God adopts us into his family, he adopts us into his family on purpose, Ephesians 1.5. Like, it's his idea. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his will. A paraphrase of according to his will would be because he wanted to. He adopted you into his family as a son or daughter. Will adopt you into his family as a son or daughter because he wanted to, because he wants to. We come into this family by adoption. And in this family, we're all equal. We're all equal. Christ doesn't call the righteous for adoption. Like, that was the Pharisees' problem. He didn't come to, to lead the sinners, the, the righteous to repentance, but who? The sinners. He doesn't call the righteous for adoption, but sinners. He doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the inward depravity and redeems us. And so it's not on the basis of race or ethnicity or skill or money or history. And so in the family of Christ, considering the relationship that we have with one another as the family of Christ, what do we see? We see diversity and harmony. We see diversity. Like, we're all different here. We're all different. We have, a, we have a collection, a collection of backgrounds and histories and stories, all different. And by the power of God, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, that turns into harmony in the family of God. And so we're distinct, but we're the same. And the way that we're the same is we are family members. We're brothers and sisters. And so that's why it's okay for us to refer to one another as brother, brother Tommy, 
Brother Jimmy. There's this, there's this relationship that comes in the family of God. And so as the family of Christ, in this relationship, we live in harmony with Christ and we live in harmony with one another. So the church is the body of Christ, which speaks to our functions. Secondly, the church is the family of Christ, which speaks to our relationship. Number three, the church is the temple of Christ, which speaks to worship. Turn to Ephesians 2. So we have the body, we have the family, and we have the temple. Ephesians 2. The church is God's expressed presence in the world. God's presence in the world is represented in the church. The church is how God reveals himself to the world. The church is how we, as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters, worship Christ and walk in his presence. This happens through the church. We'll look at Ephesians 2, but 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? That was a corrective statement on his part, but the principle is certainly true. You, if you're saved... If you've been born again, if you're redeemed, you're God's temple. You're God's temple. How do you know? Because God's Spirit dwells in you. And God's Spirit dwells in me. And this idea of the temple in the New Testament actually traces back to the Old Testament, where in the Old Testament we see God revealing Himself as the storyline advances primarily in the tabernacle and in the temple. Right? God would come and reveal himself and there were all these ritualistic things that the priest had to go through and the people had to go through to experience the presence of God. The problem with the temple, the problem with the tabernacle and the problem with the temple was it had restricted access and location. Like it was one place and it was really kind of one time. And so Israel, think about it, if you fast forward the storyline a little further, when Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, like what is their hope? None. Because all of their hope was on the temple. And so they were in utter dismay when the temple was destroyed during the Babylonian captivity. So as the Old Testament timeline continues, God begins to indicate something different to his people. Things like he would dwell with his people, Isaiah 66. He would write his law on the hearts of his people and that these people would be his, Jeremiah 31. Fast forward to John chapter 4 where Jesus interacts with the woman at the well. Right? What is the woman's question? Where do we worship? This mountain or that mountain? And Jesus says, it's not about a place. But the hour has come and is at hand where the Father's seeking worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so there's this constant unveiling of God's presence and how He's going to, how he's going to reveal His presence. And then fast forward to Acts chapter 7 where Stephen is giving his sermon before the Sanhedrin. He says, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. And in the church, in us, we see the temple of God as he reveals himself by his word to a group of gathered, called out brothers and sisters who worship Christ. Like, we are the temple of God. Like, there is no holy place for us anymore. We are the temple of God. We're individually the temples of God, and we are collectively, as a church, the temple of God. Ephesians 2 and verse 19. Paul wrote, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy 
temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice he, he points out Christ as the cornerstone in verse 20. Christ is this, the cornerstone. That's why we started this teaching series on the gospel. Like if we miss the gospel, if we miss Christ, well then we're building in vain. So Christ is the cornerstone. The Word is the foundation on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The, the Word that's coming through the, the, the apostles and the prophets. But then the picture here is that we as church folk, as brothers and sisters, we are the building blocks of God's holy temple. Verse 22, we are being, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're being built together as a dwelling place. And God is putting the pieces together as He sees fit. Like, he's the architect. He's the construction management crew. He's doing all the work in putting together this temple. 1 Peter 2.5, Peter writes, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Church, we are the dwelling place of God. Like God in His infinite wisdom and matchless grace has chosen to dwell in us by the Holy Spirit. And if we graduate from that reality, shame on us. To, to walk away from the reality that the Spirit and the presence of Christ is within us as the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have from God, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Like the principle is, hey man, the Holy Spirit is in you. Live like it. And this is what Paul is saying there in 1 Corinthians 6. And then for us as a church, the Holy Spirit is in us. Not around us, not above us. It's not some, some mystical force that we have to conjure up with all these different strategies and things. No. And the Holy Spirit is in us. Me and you, now. Revealing to us the glory of Christ and the goodness of the God who saved us. And collectively, He is building us into this dwelling place of God. And Redeemer is one part of this universal global church of all time that we see in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. Like That's, that's where this whole thing is going. And... We are the temple of Christ. And as the temple of Christ, the church is the epicenter of the worship of Christ in the world and the epicenter of God revealing Himself to the world. How has God chosen to reveal Himself to the world? It's through us. It's through us. It's through us, the church, dwelling place of Christ. And so the church is the body of Christ, which speaks to our function. The church is the family of Christ, which speaks to our relationship. The church is the temple of Christ, which speaks to our worship. And then lastly, the church is the bride of Christ, which speaks to our holiness. The church is the bride of Christ, which speaks to our holiness. Just flip over a couple chapters there in Ephesians. Go to chapter 5. Christ is the head of the church, and we are His bride. And as His bride, Christ is making His church holy. Paul addresses husband-wife relationships at the end of chapter 5. But he does so in a way that helps us to understand the true husband, the true groom and bride relationship, that is, Christ and his church. So verse 22, Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul uses this, this moment in his address to the church at Ephesus to to hit marriage relationships, but he's couching marriage relationships in the context of Christ and the church relationship. Reminding us that we, as the church, we are the bride of Christ. So a few things we see here, verse 25, we see that Christ loves the church, sacrificed himself for the church. Husbands, love your wives. Brothers, brother husbands, what is our standard for loving our wives? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, sacrificed himself. He also nourishes and cherishes her, verse 29. No one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So you see that as the bride of Christ, Christ cares for us, nourishes us, cherishes us as his bride. So Christ loves the church and sacrifices himself for the church. Christ also sanctifies and cleanses the church, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Churches, and maybe this is good news for you this morning, Christ is more concerned with our sanctification than we are. Christ is more concerned with our sanctification than we are. And that, that, might, that may not resonate with you, but that's a good word for me. Because most days go by without me considering sanctification in my own life. But as the bride of Christ, Christ is about the business of purifying us. And so he's sanctifying us and he's cleansing us. And what is he doing? Verse 27, Christ purifies the church toward holiness so that he might present to church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And why does he do this? He does... This is crazy. He does this so that he can present us to himself. Like, he's doing this work in us so that he can turn around and say, okay, you're mine. <laughs> right? Not so that he can present us to anyone or anything else, but he's sanctifying us. He's pushing us in holiness so that we can pre- be presented holy, without spot, blemish, before him. We are the bride of Christ. And so the bride Christ presents to himself is going to be without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. The bride that Christ presents to himself will be holy as he is holy. Because the work of sanctification is Christ. And so why why take a few minutes, chart through the New Testament, pull out four pictures to describe the church? We, as Redeemer Church, we need to realize that the church is no casual matter. By and large, we are far too casual when it comes to the church. In our culture, in our context, the church is an addendum to life. Think about it. And we, by and large, operate this way 
often. The church becomes something we just do. And we think the church is what we do on Sunday morning at 10.15, maybe. But the church is not something we do. Brothers and sisters, the church is who we are. This is a big deal. So much so that what we do now matters for eternity. Turn to Revelation 21. We'll see this and finish. Revelation 21, this final picture of the church, the bride, her groom, the lamb. This is, this is why Jesus is sanctifying us. This is why Jesus is pushing us toward holiness. He's purifying us. Revelation 21, 1. This is John seeing what's to come. And you have to be careful here, like just to understand. John's using human words to explain divine realities. All right, so human words are always going to fall short. Like, you, you get that. You, 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 see, you see the majestic sunset, and you can only describe it as orange and purple and pink and yellow, and we think, oh, they're just spots of colors. But John is seeing something that is indescribable, and God is guiding him to write down what is indescribable, indescribable means. And so this is what he sees. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and that first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Like, this is the end of everything, by the way. Like, this is where this is going. Which reminds us of why, how, uh, reminds us of the reality, how we look at church, how we believe uh, the church, how we act as the church, like it really, really matters. So he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This this statement in verse 3, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is not a location. The dwelling place of God at this point is not just in man. But the dwelling place of God is with man. Like, what, what does this sound very much like? Garden of Eden, right? What is he doing? What is God doing? He's constantly making all things new. Constantly making all things new. And he's doing it with us, the church. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. It's complete. It's finished. I am the Alpha and the the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. (laughs) That's us. And that's us. 
And Christ is going to purify us, make us holy, so that he can turn around and present us to him. This is the church. Not just what we do. Not just where we go. It's who we are. So much bigger than our limited visions and ideas of church. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. All things are made new. And one day, Christ is going to present you and me to himself as his bride, adorned with holiness, adorned in white splendor, adorned in righteousness, adorned in purity for all of eternity. Now, question and then we'll sing. Do you think these realities matter for here and now? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. Which causes us to say, we better get this right. We better get this church thing right. We better push through some tradition or some ideas or some strategies or some concepts and look biblically okay what what does the bible teach us about church and then how do we contextualize that truth for 2018 livingston parish knowing that this is where we're going who is the church the called out ones brothers and sisters sons and daughters of the most high king Functioning together as the body of Christ, members of Christ and of one another, living together as the family of Christ, worshiping together as the temple of Christ, and pursuing holiness as the bride of Christ. May may we be found faithful, Redeemer, in whatever part God sees fit for us to play in this picture coming to fruition. Let's stand and pray, and then we'll sing.